We see Jesus, increment 78. And today I'm going to ask a question. What about our fathers? Pastor Craig Brown, this will be an homage to him in a way because he's teaching a series of messages and has been for quite some time on the Our Father or Our Lord's Prayer. And he calls it things that make you say, hmm, about the Lord's Prayer. Well, today... Things that make you want to say, hmm, about our fathers, as it's put in the scriptures, and about how they're connected with us, them and us, fathers meaning ancestors. So we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we know that you've sent your word to accomplish a purpose which cannot be thwarted. And among the purposes for which you send your word is healing, restoration, saving grace, sanctifying grace, elevating grace. May the word, the message today be a pipeline for all those things and for all those who receive this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is still Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, but we're going to do a comparison today with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. I couldn't resist the temptation because there's so many parallels there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. The proving ground in which God's people are tested should not be turned into a proving ground for God's people testing God, for putting God to the test. Jesus, in his period of testing in the desert, like the children of Israel, succeeded where they failed. And he said to the serpent, the old serpent, the devil who tempted him or tried to test him, you will not tempt the Lord your God. This is also going to come up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 to 10, the idea of testing or tempting God or testing or tempting Christ. The majority of what we call the desert generation, which were wanderers in no man's land, to whom the PT refers in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, did just that. They turned the proving ground of the wilderness into a proving ground for God, where they tested him, put him to the test, provoked him. And so here's our passage once again in Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, remember the Holy Spirit's words apply to a generation in the distant past, to the generation to whom this letter was written, and to a generation in the 21st century, which is the generation I'm speaking into today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing God in the desert, where your ancestors, not literally is your fathers, hoi paters, Humon, your fathers tested me, 
put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, if they enter into my rest, meaning, idiomatically, they will not enter my rest. So, as I said before, it's too tempting not to consider a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians to this passage, and it's one of many places where Paul and the PT cross paths. There are many parallels between Paul's writings and the writer to the Hebrews' writings. Paul uses the same desert generation as an example for admonition, instruction, and warning to the Corinthians. And it also comes to us, as we'll see. He calls them our fathers. Hoi paters hemon, our fathers. There's just a little bit of nuance here, which we'll explain. The Holy Spirit in Psalm 94.9 calls them your fathers. Hoi paters humon, your fathers. Obviously, the Holy Spirit, as a speaker, would not refer to the ancestors as our fathers. Paul, not the Holy Spirit, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks to the Corinthian saints and says, Our fathers, our ancestors. It's important to note that Paul is writing not to a strictly Jewish Christian group here or a strictly Gentile group, but a mixture of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. It's very important because he's saying to Jewish Christians and to Gentile Christians that it was their ancestors in the desert who went through the Exodus. Very interesting. Consequently, one does not have to be of the Jewish race to claim the Exodus generation as their ancestors. In other words, more is at play here than simply natural ethnic identity. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians, that's in 10.18, not that we're going to jump there quite yet, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, calls the idolatrous majority in the desert ton Israel kata sarka, which translates as Israel according to the flesh. He says, look at Israel according to the flesh. Kata, sarka, can also be translated as dominated by the flesh. And though he does, does imply here that the saints in Corinth are descendants of Israel after the flesh, but he also implies that they are descendants of that generation called our fathers. What Paul may be hinting at in 1 Corinthians 10.18 is that that generation, according to the flesh, was dominated by an enemy, which he calls the flesh. He personifies the flesh as an enemy. So Israel, according to the flesh, may even be a play on words by Paul. He may be using the word flesh in 1 Corinthians in a way that suggests that the ancestors in, questioned, in question were ruled 
at that time or controlled by the flesh. We capitalize that F-L-E-S-H from when we studied it in Romans because Paul identifies it as a personified opponent in our spiritual warfare. And you can see, for examples of that, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Romans 8, 4 through 9, Romans 8, 12 to 13. Because it will no doubt help our joy, and that's why I'm here, believe it or not, to help your joy in First, Second Corinthians 1, 24. Because it will no doubt help our joy, let's examine this parallel text in some detail. To do that, I've done a translation from the original Greek text of this epistle and expanded it a little bit. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, siblings, that all of our fathers, there it is, all of our fathers, Paul, a Jewish Christian, calls the ancestors, his ancestors, the ancestors of both Jewish and Gentile saints in Corinth. Our fathers, all of our fathers, were under the guidance of the cloud, that's the pillar of the cloud that led them by day and through the wilderness, and all of them passed through the sea. That speaks of their deliverance through the Red Sea on dry land. Verse 10, they were all in solidarity with Moses by baptism in the experiences of the cloud and the sea. In verse 3, all of them, please notice he keeps reiterating this phrase, all of them, all of them ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Paul loves the word all. He uses it some 77 times to great effect in Romans, as we saw in our study of reading Romans with the light on. Here he's using it in a specific exhortation, that word all. He wants us to know that all of these people were partakers in a great salvation, a great salvific series of acts by God, but they still ended up as cadavers strewn across a desert. And that's pretty sobering. It's very sobering. In fact, the more I studied this, the deeper I looked at it, the more I stood in a kind of fear and trembling before God about this. Here, he is using it in a specific exhortation. All of our fathers, he says, were partakers of a great salvation through the Red Sea and to the guidance by the Lord in the pillar of cloud. They were together as one people with Moses, who was faithful in all God's house, as we learned before. But they certainly neglected those great salvific acts and rebelled in the desert. This is subsequent to a salvation. And that's the point in Hebrews. Being the objects of such a great salvation, ours being far greater through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Being the objects of such a great salvation, the readers of Hebrews, including us, were beneficiaries of a far greater salvation, far greater salvific acts of God. In one sense, this puts us under a 
greater accountability to God. To neglect such a great salvation, Hebrews 2, 3, remember that, will have even more dire results, therefore, consequences that reach beyond this life to the day when the voice of God shakes not only the earth, as it did when the Exodus generation were in the desert of Sinai, but in the future the voice of God shakes both the heavens and the earth, says Hebrews 12, 25 and 26, in conference with Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, the prophet Haggai, 2.6. And when God, who is a consuming fire, says Hebrews 12.29, and you must compare that verse with 1 Corinthians 3.13, he consumes all the works that proceed from an evil heart of unbelief that have been done in this life, in 2 Corinthians 5.1. So the point that Paul makes and the point that the PT makes in Hebrews is precisely it's the beneficiaries of salvific acts of God whose bodies were strewn across the desert subsequent to that salvation. For 1 Corinthians 10 goes on in 10.5. Listen, watch this because in our generation this is literally cinematic this picture. We, they didn't have moving pictures or movies back then that we know of, but we do have them. And this is a cinematic scene, quite in our imaginations of our heart. So it goes on to say in 10.5, and yet God was not pleased. And to that I also make a reference to Hebrews 10.38, where God expresses displeasure in him who draws back. If he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Speaking of any believer who has the, been the beneficiary of salvific acts. So, again, and yet God was not pleased with the majority of them, for they were killed. And that's the blunt meaning of what it means here. It means laid low, overthrown, struck down. And the sense is that they're Dead bodies were scattered across the desert. The Latin translation has prostate here. P-R-O-S-T-R-A-T-I. Prostrate across the desert. Therefore, not prostrating themselves before the living God in obedience and faith to him, to go into the land which God promised and to take those giants down, through the power of God, not prostrating themselves to the living God, but rather to dead idols in the wilderness. They ended up prostrate, all right, dead, strewn across the desert. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Now, I carefully, and this is a very important thing, because this is where a preacher has to be careful and very serious and reverent. I have to fearfully and reverently pose this question. If the majority of the desert generation were killed and laid low in the desert, who killed them? Well, 
the epistle of Jude. That's the last book in the Bible before Revelation. Jude is almost a cover for Second Peter. People cover songs today. Groups cover songs of famous rock groups. Jude was a cover of Second Peter in many regards. He's a little more crude. Jude is more crude. In Jude 1.5, he says, I'm determined to remind you, even though you know all these things, he says, that the Lord once saved his people out of the land of Egypt, but subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. That's a tough verse. Some people don't want to read it. From here we should consider then a comparison. Now this is something way back when I taught the Gospel of John. The most significant book I read for that study, I think, and probably one of the most significant books I've ever read was a book by John Ronning about the Jewish Targums and the origin of the Logos or the Word in John. And I just picked it up again and realized I could hardly read some of it because of my own notes over the top of it. But I want to consider a comparison here in a verse, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. Deuteronomy is part of, 32 is part of what we call Moses' swan song, his last speech. His death is recorded shortly after it. That's, in fact, in Deuteronomy 32, 5 is where he spoke about a crooked and perverse generation which also finds its way into Philippians 2, 14 and 15. But in Deuteronomy 32, 39, this is something that hit me very strongly when I read this book the first time and has never left my consciousness. From here, we should consider a comparison then between Deuteronomy 32, 39. First, we'll look at it in the English translation. I'm going to read it in the English translation from the Masoretic Hebrew text. Most English translations translate the Old Testament scriptures from the Hebrew Masoretic text rather than the Septuagint. So first I'm going to read it in the English translation from the Masoretic Hebrew text from Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I still find to be an excellent translation. Secondly, I'm going to read it from the Septuagint translation from the New English translation of the Septuagint, another excellent and modern translation of the Septuagint. And then I'm going to read from two Targums. The Targums, T-A-R-G-U-M-S. Targums, abbreviated T-G. The Targums are extremely significant because in the spirit of Nehemiah 8.8, they were written by Jewish theologians and translators And there was a commentary inserted in the translation that was intended to give the sense of what was being said. So you see expansions. Now, they didn't make the canon, but they are very significant. There is Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, which is abbreviated PSJ. Targum Pseudo-Jonathan of Deuteronomy 32-39. There is also Targum Neophyti, N-E-O. F-I-T-I. That was only recently discovered, relatively recently discovered, the Targum Neophyti. They are two renditions of the Targum, 
or the explanatory explications of the Hebrew text in various places. Deuteronomy 32.39. So here it is first in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which translates it from the Hebrew text. See now, God is speaking here. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death. Please notice that. I bring death. And I give life. Now, for us, that's good news. Because as Paul said, I was crucified with Christ because God brought me death. Nevertheless, I live because God brought me life. So they both happen for us. But, but that's, that's not the point for right now, although that's the ultimate point. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. If God wounds a nation like he has recently our nation, he will also heal the nation. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. You can put that in a positive sense or you can put that in a negative sense. But that's Deuteronomy 32, 39, English translation of the Hebrew text. Secondly, here's the Septuagint in the New English translation of the Septuagint, Deuteronomy, which the Greek is Deuteronomion, 32, 39. See, see that I am, God says, and there is no God except me. I will kill and I will make alive. I will strike and I will heal. And there is no one who will deliver them from my hands. Now it can be said of men and sometimes legitimately of armies that they kill. And once they kill, they cannot heal. It can also be said that people in the medical profession heal in one regard, although there's no healing without God, no efficacy to medicines without God. But we can say that people heal. They're even given the gifts of healing. But nobody kills and heals. Nobody kills and makes alive except God, who has the prerogative to do both. And I'll be one to admit God killed me and made me alive. I was crucified with Christ. Now, so were you. But do you acknowledge that fact? I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live because God brought to me death in this world, but also gave me life in the next age, but gave it to me now. Now, I know that's a difficult thing to wrestle with, but wrestle with it. Deal with it, because it'll be profitable. Now consider, this is from John Ronning, R-O-N-N-I-N-G, and I recommend his book highly, even though it's difficult and academic in places. This is his book on the Jewish Targums, both Targum Pseudo-Jonathan and Targum Neophyte. First, we have that which is called Targum Pseudo-Jonathan of Deuteronomy 32. Notice it's quite expanded, but notice the sense he gives it. When the word of the Lord, capital W, when the word of the Lord shall be revealed to redeem his people, he shall say to all the peoples, quote, see now that I am he who is and was, and I am he who will be in the future. 
and there is no other God besides me. I, by my word, please notice that, by my word, and the word in the Aramaic is memra, which translates into the Greek as logos. And so Ronning proves, at least I think conclusively, that the origin of the word logos, or word, capital W-O-R-D, in John's gospel did not originate from Greek philosophy, philosophy, but from the Jewish targums. So he says, I am he, I by my word put to death, and bring to life. I struck the people of the house of Israel. I struck the people of the house of Israel, and I will heal them at the end of days. And there is no one who delivers from my hand. Now you have a picture of God with Israel in his hand with the intention to heal, and nobody's going to take Israel out of his hand or out of his healing purpose for Israel. Thank God. Now here's Targum Neophyte. Targum Neophyte, Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I in my word, capital W-O-R-D, am he. And there is no other God besides me. I am he. And this is the most revealing part of this whole thing so far. I am he who causes the living to die in this world and who brings to life the dead in the world to come. I am he who strikes and I am he who heals and there is no one who delivers from my hands. Now, if you're a Christian, you can say that both of these things has already happened to you. He has caused you, the living, to die in this age, but he's also given you the life of the coming age in Christ already. Now, that life in the coming age isn't going to be realized fully until you're bodily risen from the dead, and then it will be realized fully and forever, as we know, from many different teachings before this. Now, this comparison serves us on two levels. You see, I did all that to do this. First, this comparison shows that God determines, nobody else, God determines the time, the manner, and the place of our death in this age, in this life. And sometimes the manner he chooses causes the living to die in this world as a consequence of one's own self-destructive actions. In other words, it's a sin that leads to death, as John called it in 1 John 5, 16 to 17. He said there is a sin that doesn't bring death with it, and there is a sin that does bring death with it, and I don't ask you to pray for that one. Why? Because A, God doesn't tell us ever to pray for the dead, and B, more so, he never tells us to pray to the dead. Now, that might offend a lot of people, so I would say to that, good. Secondly, however, the death that God causes of the living in this life 
is counterbalanced and superseded by bringing to life the dead in the world to come. In what we've come to call in Hebrews, like in 1.5 and 2.5, 1.6 and 2.5, future world. He causes the same people whom he removes from this living in this life he causes them to live in future world. So the answer to the question, can a beneficiary of God's saving acts die as a result of a judgment of God in this life? The answer is yes. Not maybe. Yes. Not yay and nay. Yay. Can a beneficiary of God's saving acts die as a result of a judgment of God in this life? Yes. If we consider the many who died because of taking the Eucharist lightly in 1 Corinthians 11.30, you can't take the word of God lightly. I can't either. Neither, neither can I take lightly the Eucharist, the communion service, or anything else that the Bible commands. If we consider the many who died, according to 1 Corinthians 11.30, sleep being a euphemism for death, because they took the Eucharist lightly and unworthily, if we consider... Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead at the feet of the apostles for lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, 1 through 10. If we think of the majority of the Exodus generation, then we have to say yes to that question. Can a beneficiary of God's saving acts die as a result of a judgment of God in this life? Yes. And if there is a sin that brings death, and I'm quoting directly from the scripture, there is a sin that brings death. As John says in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, for which we are not to pray, then the answer is yes. We're never told in all the canonical scriptures, however, to pray for the dead. A person commits a certain kind of act or a certain kind of prolonged bitterness and complaining and murmuring against God and their toxic root of bitterness spills up and starts to defile many and God decides to take that person out of the picture. Well, once he takes them out of the picture, you don't pray for them. They're dead. You don't pray for them. You don't pray for the dead. You don't pray to the dead. Saints or not. So, we're never told in all the canonical scriptures to pray for the dead. Say nothing of praying to them. Now, I'm going to take it one step further on this thing about there. No one saves them out of my hand. No one rescues them out of my hand. No one snatches them out of my hand. Because Jesus used the same saying and made a little bit of an adjustment with the saying in John 10, 28 and 29. What fascinated me for years, ever since reading Ronning's book on the Jewish Targums, and when something stays in your mind for a long time, you begin to really think that maybe God put it there. Since reading Ronning's book on the Jewish Targums and studying it fairly carefully, when we were reading John's Gospel, studying John's Gospel, the thing that fascinated me is that Jesus also spoke of no one who could deliver from his hand 
and from his father's hand, whom he said is greater than all of you. But in John 10, 28, when a sheep to whom Jesus gives eternal life is in his hand, and he says, and no one is able to snatch that sheep out of my hand. So putting John 10, 28 to 29 into the mix of today's spiritual meal shows us that those who are saved by the Lord, though they may be put to death in this life for acting like the majority of the Exodus generation did while neglecting such a great salvation, they are nevertheless still in his now nail-scarred hand, and they will live in the world to come, albeit transformed out of their former false self. See how this connects to the last two messages. The double-edged sword of the word cuts with both edges. No matter which way you swing it, it cuts. It's fitting on the one side for rebuke, warning, and exhortation with one edge as it lays wide open to the view of God, our mentality and intentionality. See, the word of God is a critic, criticos, a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's why people don't flock to hear the word of God. They flock to stadiums to hear evangelists who give them smooth things and positive thinking. They will not flock to hear the word of God, which is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart and lays wide open the intentionality and the mentality of people. Nobody wants that in their natural realm unless, if you want that, it's because you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ and no other reason. Or a masochist, one of the two. The double-edged sword cuts on both edges, with both edges. It's fitting for rebuke, warning, and exhortation with one edge, but it also with the other edge lays open the hidden mystery of the cross of Christ, whereby even the most egregious evils are converted into a supreme good. So those two things are revealed. Yes, he opens up the intentions of the heart and criticizes them, judges them, and Thankfully, we can do this now under the true ministry of the Word of God. You do this habitually, you're going to have a much more pleasant experience when the whole thing happens all at once to some people at the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to be a trauma for some people. And so I take a little bit of trauma at a time through the preaching of the Word under the ministry of the Holy Spirit anytime rather than blowing it off my whole life, dying in a sin that leads to my death, facing the judgment of God in my false self and having the whole thing done in one operation. Not going to happen to me. Not going to happen to you if you're listening to this message, I hope. So, consider again. 1 Corinthians 10, a little shortened version of it. And yet God was not pleased with the majority of them for their bodies were laid out prostrate in the desert failing to prostrate themselves to the living God, their Savior, and prostrating themselves to idle gods, their corpses now lay prostrated in no man's land where they wandered. 
To our generation, this scene is, again, cinematic. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 16, supportive of everything I've been saying so far, the scripture is as cutting as Jude, as crude as Jude when it says, quote, God slaughtered them in the desert because he, listen carefully to this, wasn't able to take this people into the land. Now, that doesn't jive with my consciousness. God not able, the omnipotent God for whom nothing is impossible, not able? Well, this reminded me immediately of Matthew 13, 58, where in a certain place where Jesus was ministering, it says he was unable to do many miracles in a certain place because of the people's unbelief. And the word there is apistia. It's a word that's used also, believe it or not, we're going to get there, I think, Hebrews 3.12. An evil heart of apistia in the Greek. It's A-P-I-S-T-I-A. It's like the negative or privative A deprives pistia, faithfulness, of its effectiveness. So apistia is the opposite of what is called P-I-S-T-I-S, faith. Apistia is illustrated by the Exodus generation. Pistis, faith or faithfulness, is illustrated by a catalog, a partial catalog of faith heroes from bygone eras in Hebrews 11, 3 to 40. See, so we're, we're hunkered down on 3, 7 to 11, but we're also seeing how this fans out throughout the entire letter to the Hebrews. So he was unable to do many miracles in a certain place because of the people's apistia. Matthew thirteen fifty eight. this word apistia is also found in our next verse that we'll be considering, not today, but down the road, Hebrews 3, 12, also in 3, 3, 19. And that's in contrast with Romans four twenty, where it says, Abraham did not waver in unbelief as we are called to do in Hebrews ten twenty three. We are called not to waver in our faith in our confession. God is able to do anything. However, if he makes something to be on the condition of his people trusting him, he cannot do that for them if they do not believe. Here's the land, go into it, and you will on the condition that you believe in me, that you trust in my power to take out the armies of those giants in there, They're those large people, those intimidating people. And the, you remember that there were 12 spies sent into the land and 10 of them came back and were scared to death and shaking in their boots. But Caleb and Joshua said, we can take them. Caleb and Joshua di- did go into the land because of faith. The rest involved the majority of that generation And they fell apart in unbelief. So God couldn't take them into the land because he had already made the condition of faith for their entry into the land. And so that's what rendered him unable in that case, if we could say it that way. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things became types for us, types for us, patterns of disposition and behavior to avoid, in other words. The Bible contains patterns of disposition and behavior to avoid at all costs. 
I would call it, in short, negative incentive. These things became types for us, which again are patterns of disposition. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 10.6 to avoid negative incentives so that we wouldn't crave harmful things as they craved. And let us not practice, verse 7. Now he uses, this sounds like the preacher now, the PT that wrote Hebrews. Let us. He's not saying you do this or you don't do this. Let us not do this. Let us do this. Paul is being cohortatory here. He's saying, you and me, let's not do this. You and me, you and us, us and me, let's not do this. He's using that cohortatory aspect as the Hebrews writer does Many times, at least 10 times in Hebrews. So note the cohortatory method. Verse 7, and let us not practice sexual immorality as some of them did with the result that 23,000 died in a single day. So note the cohortatory method. Let us, let us not. As so often deployed by the PT in Hebrews, let us, let us not. Most pertinent to Hebrews, though, the above certainly is also pertinent, as Hebrews 13.4 says. Most pertinent to Hebrews is 1 Corinthians 10.9. And let's not put Messiah to the test. Let's not put Messiah to the test. And I would put in parentheses, as the devil did, the serpent did in Matthew 4. And in Luke 4, it's true that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert. But that's so that he could overcome where the desert generation failed. So the desert generation that was killed in their own generation would be made alive for future worlds. Think that through. You might have to jump to some conclusions but you won't be jumping because the scriptures will carry you there. So, and let's not put the Messiah to the test, even as some of them tested him and were destroyed by serpents. Isn't it interesting that the old serpent tested Christ in the wilderness, and here the people that tested Christ were killed by serpents. They were killed by vipers. They were killed by venomous snakes. 23,000 died on one occasion, and... In this case, they were destroyed by the destroyer, thousands of them. Nor should we complain. Now someone says, well, I complain all the time. Am I going to die? Yes. <laughs> no. If, if Complaining here is referring to a people that went and made an official complaint to Moses and said things like, you led us out here to kill us as if God had nothing to do with delivering them from Egypt. The complaint, in other words, was rooted in a serious evil unbelief. So complaining as they did, yes, we will be in danger of being laid low in this life. So, nor should we complain just as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Their complaints, of course, led to revolt. Their revolt led to God's reaction. And their reaction was the way that God removed them from this life. Paul also refers obliquely to that generation in Philippians 2, 14 to 15. 
Do everything you do without complaining, he says, and be as lights in an otherwise perverse and crooked generation. Why? So that I can be proud of you, Paul says, at the day of Christ. I want to be proud of you in the day of Christ. So do everything that you do without complaining. And that means to take every task you do, however menial, serious. That's what the Spartans did. They were famous for it. So when they faced battles, they did so with a relaxed courage and fought with a legendary ferocity. If you're faithful in a little, God makes you ruler over much. But let's back up slightly. 10.9. Let's not put the Messiah to the test. Even as some of them tested him. How did they do that? They complained about the water. They complained about the lack of water as if God wouldn't provide the water. And the water, what? Came from what? The rock. And who is the rock but Christ? So they tested Christ. They weren't just testing Moses. They were testing God who delegated him and made him faithful in all his house. So let's not put Messiah to the test, even as some of them tested him and were destroyed by serpents, nor should we complain just as some of them did and were killed by the Terminator, the destroyer. You say, well, see, God didn't lay him low then. A destroyer did. Yes, a destroyer sent by God. So Paul also refers obliquely to that generation, again, in Philippians 2, 14 to 15, by referring to Deuteronomy 32, 5, but with a view to what Hebrews 10, 25 calls the day. Assemble yourselves together. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which for now, for us, is to assemble around the word of God, not physically so much, which will be true in, in the spring, perhaps, but we assemble around the word of God by one or two or three or many, as many as possible, with a view to the day. Because the day is approaching. The day, capital D-A-Y, is approaching. When? Christ will reveal everything. And when the day will declare our works, whether they were rooted in the disposition of unbelief or in the disposition and gift of faith. So, it's called the day of Christ in Philippians 1.6, 2.16. It's called that way in 1 Corinthians 1.8, 2 Corinthians 1.14. The day of Jesus, the day of our Lord Jesus, the day of Christ, the day alone. And today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2, compared with Hebrews 10.25. So I'm almost ready to close, and I'm not going to go into the second half of this message today. Instead, I'm going to make the second half of this message an entire message down the road. But I want to continue just slightly. One more verse in in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul refers to a thing which the Hebrew calls akarit hamayim, or hayamin. Akarit hayamim. 
And that means the end days or the last days. And I recently read in the Jerusalem Post of all places that that term, akarit hamayim, does not refer to an apocalyptic ending, but to an extraordinarily bright future, a universally bright future. So what's come to bear upon us now is an extraordinarily bright future of a universal reconciliation, a universal restoration. But within that universal restoration and that within that universal reconciliation, there will be a transformation whereby the false self of people will be left behind, the true self put on, recovered, and restored. And so Akarit Hayamim is not like preachers like to preach about an apocalyptic, horrible ending to the earth and they make all the plagues of Revelation be for our future when in fact it's only speaking symbolically of events that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Akarit, A-C-H-A-R-I-T dash H-A-Y-A-M-I-M. That's not what appears in 1 Corinthians. It's the equivalent of what he calls the end of the ages. It is a bright and universal future. Jeremiah 29, 11 speaks of it when it says, I have not my, I know the thoughts that I think about you, and they are not to pull the rug out from underneath you. They are to give you a hope and a destiny and a bright future. That's essentially a paraphrase of Jeremiah 29, 11. It's also dealing with Acts 3.21, which talks about the universal restoration, which God spoke about univocally through all the prophets from time immemorial, without exception, a universal restoration. And so here's... 1 Corinthians 10.11 in perspective. Now these things happen typologically, and that's the Greek word tupikos, typologically, and they were written down for a warning for us. Can't be any clearer. To whom the end of the ages has come. We are on the verge of the brilliant, bright future that comes with the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ and the glorious restoration of all things. But we're also on the precipice of a day in which the fire of God will declare all that we've done and thought and been disposed toward in this life. And so now these things happen typologically, and they were written down for a warning for us. And I can say for us just as clearly and just as emphatically for the 21st century as Paul could say for us in the first century. Because as we'll see, what he said here, the end of the ages, if it's come to him and his generation, how much more has it come to us? Paul said this with such force that the words are propelled to land right on our doorstep right now, right here. So, these things happened typologically and they were written down for a warning for us to whom the end of the ages has come. The picture is that whole end of the ages, this massive new future world has come all the way up to your doorstep and is knocking on your door. In fact, Jesus said that. Behold, I'm knocking on the door. We answer by our positive volition to the teaching of the word of God and no other way. The point, then, in closing, the point, here's the point. 
we are in the desert or no man's land that is neither the evil age nor the age to come. That's why I like to call it no man's land. In one sense, it's neither the evil age nor the age to come, but in another sense, it's both the evil age and the one to come. Both are present and clashing right now. In Romans, we develop the idea that we are in an agona, an arena of contention, and it's real. And the stakes are higher than you want to even imagine. But that same thing we call an agona, here we're going to call a proving ground for us too. It's a an agona of contention, but it's also a proving ground because of what 1 Peter 1.6 says, though now, because it's necessary, you are going through a series of manifold testings so that your faith, which is being tested now, may be commended in the moment of the universal appearance of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, his glorious appearing. And that's a paraphrase of 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. So the same arena that we call the testing or the proving ground is the arena that we call the agona of contention. In 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, this testing is necessary. It's why you're here and why I'm here. And... It's intended to result in the commendation of your faith and my faith in the universal appearing of Jesus Christ, which is right at our door right now. The commendation of the faith of people of bygone eras is partly cataloged in Hebrews 11. See, this is where this thing goes. We're reaching far out. For those of you that are impatient with 3, 7 to 11 of Hebrews, don't you know that we're actually expanding that out to cover the whole epistle as we're doing this. And this Hebrews 11 catalog is contrasted with the ugly narrative of the majority of the generation of wanderers in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, which is a type of our wandering in between the act of our initial deliverance and the act of the consummation of our salvation. Consider this life to be a proving ground. It's a proving ground. Because it is a a proving ground. And it's our faith that's being proven with the result that God intends to commend it. Well done, good and faithful servant is what he wants to say. As faith involves assent the ascent of our will, and resultant certitude and assurance, as Hebrews 11.1 calls it, that leads to obedience. Unbelief is lack of assent and confidence leading to the disobedience that leads to other negative consequences. Obedience is implicit trust in the Lord. It's trust given in a certain situation. In other words, it is, you can say, I have faith, 
And that would be very nice for you to say. But if God said, go into that land and take those giants down and conquer that land, you can say, I have faith all day long. But if you don't believe that you can go in there and do that with the power of God, you don't have faith. The faith that you have is not commended by God. It's nothing but a creedal and hypocritical statement that you and I make sometimes. So faith involves assent and certitude that results from assent and assurance that leads to obedience. And it is trust in the Lord in a given situation where it's required. Therefore, it's given faith is most important when it respond, it's a response to a given command. For the Israelites in the wilderness, go and take that land, is the command. And it was met either with disobedience rooted in unbelief, or it was met with obedience grounded in faith, as in the case of Joshua and Caleb. In the case of the desert wanderer, faith in God's power meant faith in the power of God to defeat the giants of the land. For us, it's the shield of faith that we hold up with the faith in God's power to defeat our supernatural enemies who confront us on the way to our land or in the land that we're already in, in one sense. So, Father, we thank you for this exhortation from your word. And we understand that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's a two-edged sword because it cuts both ways. It cuts in a way that exhorts, rebukes, reproves, corrects, warns, and it cuts in a way that uplifts and that reveals the mystery of the cross by which you convert the evils of mankind into a greater and superior good. We thank you for this, Father. We thank you that we are of a generation that also has come to whom has come this bright and glorious future. May we be prepared for that glorious and bright future by seeing him who is crowned with glory and honor, by seeing Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.